Anyone here ever been hit in the head by a rock? I have. Twice. Might explain a few things, huh? The first one, though, was not thrown by anyone. It was launched by a lawnmower. Yeah, that, that one hurt. Uh, that one hurt a lot. But that was not the first one. The first one actually happened when I was in fourth grade. It was winter. It was snowy. Uh, a couple days prior, we'd gotten several inches of snow. And so my friend Brett invited me to come to his house. And we were going to make an epic snowman. I mean, this was like great packing snow. And so we were going to ride the school bus from our fourth grade elementary school building up to the middle school because his dad was the middle school band teacher. So the plan was we'd ride up there, we'd go to the band building, wait for dad, then dad would take us back to the house where we could then begin building the snowman. Well, as we got off the bus, we're walking across the parking lot where the teachers parked, and all of a sudden, Brett gets hit by a snowball. And we turn and look, and there's this seventh grader who's decided that these two little pipsqueak fourth graders don't belong at the middle school, and so he needs to teach us a lesson and shoo us away. And so we duck behind a couple of cars as this guy just keeps chucking snowballs at us. And Brett's like, come on, let's get him. And he starts packing snow. And I'm thinking, okay. So I start making my own snowballs and we're trying to launch him back. And as we're launching him back, we're like trying to cover each other. Like, okay, you dive to the next car while I throw. You know, we throw a couple and one of us would dive over to the next car. And we kept trying to work our way closer to the band building. Well, there came a point where Brett and I are behind the same car. And Brett's like, I can't see him. I can't see him. Where is he at? Where is he at? And so I turn around to look to see where he's at, and bam, I get one right in the forehead. And buried inside was a rock. Now, the welt on my forehead got the seventh grader in school suspension, as well as giving me a headache. But I remember that moment quite a bit. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go back with me in time, and I want you to replay that moment in slow motion. You're going to see little fourth grade Aaron peek around the corner and the snowball begins to impact the forehead. All right, here, here are some uh, slow motion snowballs hitting the faces. You, this is what you expect. When a snowball hits you, you expect to see little like, like a white bomb, little fragments shattering everywhere and, and the surprise on the face. What I didn't expect in that parking lot was that embedded inside the white mass was a gray mass that when it hit my forehead did not shatter into fragments, but it remained firm and hard. And the look on my face was much different. It wasn't one of just shock and surprise. It was one of pain. I believe that that right there is a great illustration of Christmas. We see Christmas like a big fluffy snowball. And we expect it to behave certain ways. Like we expect to eat certain foods. We expect to listen to certain music. We expect to watch certain movies. We expect to hold certain traditions. We even expect to have certain emotions. This is what Christmas is. But as you go into the scriptures, you start discovering that embedded within Christmas is a rock. A rock that shatters really what we want Christmas to be. A rock that is truth, that's immobile. Now, this rock is not designed to bring a welt to your forehead and give you a headache. But this rock is there to make an impact. It is supposed to impact your faith. It's supposed to impact your heart. 
It's supposed to impact your life. And that rock, the rock of Christmas, is the incarnation. The incarnation shatters what we see, Christ, I mean, sorry, not American Christianity, the American Christmas idea. What we see Christmas be a certain way, and the incarnation says, I've got something better, something deeper that is to impact you and change you. That's why we're going to take four weeks to look at the incarnation itself. And we're going to see the way it should impact us. And today we're going to see the way it should impact our view of God. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, let's just make sure we've got the right definition of incarnation. The New Oxford Dictionary defines incarnation as this. A person who embodies in the flesh a deity. A person who embodies in the flesh a deity. In ancient cultures, some saw their Caesars or their pharaohs, their kings, as being incarnate gods. Uh, as far as religions go, Hinduism, I, I did some research this week. Hinduism seems to be about the only other religion that really has this idea of incarnation. But they have so many gods. And it was only one of the gods that took on human flesh. Christianity is different in that it is the only monotheistic religion that believes that God took on flesh. That this God, one God in three persons, had one member of that trinity come down and take on human flesh to incarnate into humanity. That's the definition we're going to run with, with incarnation. However, rather than just be a nice little story, that idea of God becoming man fundamentally changes life as we know it. And that's what we're going to look at today. And the first way it changes it is our view of God. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here at Riverwood, we don't care if you use a paper Bible or a digital Bible. We just encourage you, get a Bible. If you don't have a paper copy and you want one, we've got uh, different copies, two different translations back on our Give and Grow table. If you've got a smartphone and don't have a Bible app on it, there's some free ones out there. We encourage you to download one. That way you always have a Bible with you. So we're going to read today from John 1, 1 through 18. I've already, we've already heard it once today. Kale read that for us as our scripture reading. But I'm going to read the entire thing again. And we're actually, this series, going to look at that passage every single week. Because as we're going to see, it talks about the incarnation. So before we read the word, let me pray. So Heavenly Father, we are about to come into the scriptures. And we need you to be our teacher. Uh, I've tried to do some preparation this week. And it doesn't matter how well I've done in my preparation or how weak I've done. When right now at this moment, it is about you. And so, Father, I pray that you would take my failings, uh, my, my weaknesses, uh, and would you just overcome them? And would your strength come through powerfully to your people? Because these people have gathered together. And, and they're here to sing to you, but to also to learn from you. And so, Father, I pray that this would move beyond just who I am and what I want to say. And this would really be about you and what you have for us. So, Father, would you be our teacher now as we read from John? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, we're going to center today on verses 14 and 18. Uh, they're going to help us kind of capture this new view of God. However, before we get there, we need to establish a few things because this is going to be our main passage throughout this entire series. And so we've just got to get one thing set straight, and that is this. This passage is all about Jesus. It, now, John does not name him until verse 17, right? So he goes a long ways without naming him, and yet he talks about him the entire way. But what I want to do is I want us to pause for a bit and let's pretend that we've never heard this before. Let's imagine that we are getting to open this up for the very first time and suddenly we start reading and we've got to kind of figure it out because John is a beautiful poet, but he is a lousy mystery novelist, right? He drops such huge big clues in this. It becomes obvious as you get going who he's talking about. But let's just play along. Let's go back to the beginning, verse 1, and let's see what John is trying to accomplish here. He starts off, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, if you were a Jewish little boy or girl, you're hearing this for the very first time, you would read that and see, In the beginning was the Word. And that would immediately hearken back to you the first book of your Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 starts the exact same way. In the beginning. But in Genesis 1-1, it starts off, In the beginning, God. Here, he starts off, in the beginning was the Word. And so you realize he's talking about since creation, since before time began, in the beginning. Now, you know that God exists, but all of a sudden he says, was the Word. And you'd pause for a moment, like, what was this Word? Who is this Word? Like, is it a magic word? Like, abracadabra. Or, or, or is it like the kind of word that your boss wants to have with you? Like, hey, you step in my office. I'm going to have a word with you. You know that means you're fired. You know, is it that kind of word? And so you're, you're kind of wondering, all right, so in the beginning, before creation, was this word? What? Who is this word? So John starts to drop clues. The word was with God. 
So now you're thinking, oh, okay. So in the beginning, God created. I know, I know that. So now this word was with God there. So like, is this an angel who, who's kind of like, you know, rubbing his hands in anticipation, excited, like, oh, this is going to be good. I get to see God create everything. Or, or maybe is this the actual like words that God spoke? Like, let there be light. And there was light. So you're figuring it out. Okay, so this word is there in the beginning, before creation, before time. It's with God. All right, next phrase. And the word was God. Now that would make you pause. You're, you're, you're trying to wrap your mind around it. Like, wait, wait, hang on. Time out. It's with God, but it was God? You see, John is teaching basic Christian theology in this moment. God is teaching that, I mean, sorry, John is teaching that God is a triune God. That he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you talk about one member of this trinity, you're talking about God. And so if you talked about one member with another member, you would be saying, well, like, God is with God. And yet there's only one God. They are of the same essence, the same purpose. And yet there's these three persons, these three personalities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And now you're starting to figure out what John is saying is that one of these members of this trinity, this triune God, is the Word. That's how you can say this word was with God and the word was God. And then to add just a beautiful chiastic exclamation point, he writes verse 2. He, this word, was in the beginning with God. So he's kind of wrapping it all together. And now we're starting to realize that this word is not a what, it's a who. That this who was with God, but yet it's also God. And this who was there at the very beginning. And you're starting to catch on. This is big. This is really big. He keeps going. This big God, this triune God, is an active God. Y you with your little Jewish boy, girl mindset would know that God created in the beginning. So you know that God is an active God. But this God isn't just active creating. This God is even on the move. Skip all the way down to verse 14 with me. John writes in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John is writing this so that people might know who Jesus is. And at this point, a lot of his audience has truly figured it out. I mean, he's already talked about John the Baptist. He's talked about how he was rejected. You're starting to catch on, and now you realize the Word, who was with God in the beginning because he is God, took on flesh and dwelt among humans. Jesus himself said that I and the Father are one. He claimed divinity. And as we saw during our His Story series, that some of the miracles and some of the teachings that Jesus did could only have been done because he was God. And so you're starting to realize that Jesus is divine. He is God. And yet, we also saw in our His Story series that Jesus walked, he ate food, he slept. He was fully human. And you're starting to realize that what John is saying here is that Jesus was fully God and fully human. He was God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became human and lived with humans. This is the incarnation. Paul writes about the incarnation in one of his letters. Uh, when he wrote to the church in Philippi, he put the incarnation this way. It's in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. I've got it on the screen for you. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul is reiterating the same thing that John is pointing out, that Jesus was God and yet became man. And this is crucial to Christianity. You get rid of the incarnation, you basically just got rid of the entire religion of Christianity. We can't have the cross, the central piece, without the incarnation. Because God had been whispering all throughout time that he himself was going to come. And he did through the person of Jesus. But why did Jesus come? Why did he take on flesh and dwell among us? Go back to John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why did Jesus take on flesh and dwell among humans? To show us the glory of God. He was here to show us who God is. I've been doing ministry in Iowa long enough to have had multiple conversations with people that when they find out I'm a pastor, they'll say things like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe in God. But as I hear their story, I don't hear much about Jesus in there. We have a lot of God-fearers in Iowa. But when it comes to Jesus, something's different. I I think a lot of people in Iowa, we've got visions of who God is. We envision him as, you know, this powerful being. Maybe we envision him like an old man. He's got a really long white beard. Maybe you see him like Santa Claus. Or maybe you see him like having huge muscles holding lightning bolts. Maybe he's a judge sitting on a throne with a gavel waiting to just, you know, smite you. We have all these visions of God. And the incarnation impacts that view. So what I want to do is I want to jump to a famous Christmas passage that goes right along with John 1. You should flip open to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9. And I want you to see how Isaiah helps us, in a sense, have our view of God impacted. He like packs a little rock inside his snowball. Isaiah 9, uh, even if you kind of never went to church growing up, it's possible you've heard this passage. This is the famous passage shared almost every December But what I want to do is, rather than start where most people start, I want us to kind of go to the end of the passage, all right? So go to Isaiah 9 and head to verse 7, and I want us to see how God is described here by Isaiah. As Isaiah is talking about uh, God, he's really talking about the Messiah, he says this, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, if you were to imagine in your head God as a king, this is what you expect. You expect God to rule with justice, for him to bring peace, that his rule would be without end. Like, this fits our expectations. This fits the idea of God. It's like the snowball hit in the face. It shatters into a million pieces, just like we expect. But Isaiah has already put a rock in there that changes all of that. The rock starts back in verse 2. So look at chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. As Isaiah is writing, he's talking about how the people are living in darkness and this light is going to come. 
Okay, yeah, God. God is light. He's going to shine his truth into the darkness of humanity. Okay, yeah, yeah, I, I'm good with this. This is Aaron. This is to fit with my expectations of God. All right, so Isaiah is going to describe this light to us a little bit more. Skip down to verse 6. Who is this light? The light is a baby. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Could you imagine the first readers? Yeah, 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 yeah. We want God to be a light. We want God to be a king. When, when he shows up, what's it going to look like? He's going to look like a baby. I don't know if you've noticed, but baby shoulders aren't very big. I mean, baby Mike is right back there. Yesterday, little Levi was just born to the Wheeler family. Right? Their shoulders aren't very big, and yet this baby is supposed to carry a government on his shoulders? He's supposed to like lead a nation? I know, he's speaking metaphorically, but still, think about the imagery. This is shocking. You're like, wait, what are you saying? He's embedded a rock. The incarnation begins to change our view of God. And Isaiah's not done. This baby has a name, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. I have yet to have a baby counsel me on what to do. Yet this baby will be already be known as a Wonderful Counselor. This baby is going to be known as Mighty God. Suddenly the imagery of the old man, or the judge, or the, the muscular man holding the, the bolt, it, it, it fades. This baby is going to be God? Everlasting Father. This is getting really confusing. And yet he's not done. The baby is going to be the prince of peace. We see babies as being helpless. They need us to bring peace to them. They're crying for food or warmth or mother's touch. And yet this baby is going to bring peace. Isaiah has embedded a rock right inside our Christmas snowball. And he's helping to see that God is not who he thought he was. He's different. And how do we know that this God is different? Because he came. He came as a baby. And why did he come? Because John started to tell us. He came to show us the glory of God. John wasn't done, though, telling us about this Jesus and how he impacts our view of God. Head back to John chapter 1 and look down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, he writes. This corresponds with what uh, Paul said when he was writing to a, group, a church in Colossae. He described Jesus as being the visible image of the invisible God. No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. As I studied that verse this week, that phrase there, the only God, some translations put it as the only Son. And the reason they translate it that way is because the word that is used there is the same word used over in John 3.16. A lot of you could quote John 3.16 to me. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son. His only begotten son. And yet that's exactly the phrase there. The only God. The only begotten God. John, again, is pushing his theology upon us. This God, one God in three persons. The only God who's at the Father's side. He's referring to Jesus. And he's at the Father's side. And what is he able to do? He's able to make him known to us. Whatever imagery you may have had of God in your head, the incarnation shatters it. 
And it helps us see the very different picture of God. The rock of Christmas, this incarnation, it helps us see God in two ways. First, it helps us see that we can know God. We can know him. Jesus makes God knowable. When, when uh, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, Philip says to him, Jesus, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus' response is, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you see my character, when you see who I am, when you see the things I do, you're seeing the works of the Father. I don't do anything without my Father working through me. When you look at Jesus, you see God. That's why you can't have this dual imagery in your head of, oh, well, God is like this God who sits up on his throne. He's just waiting to mete out justice. Like, he's not approachable. But Jesus, I like. Jesus is kind of cool. He taught some really nice things. He fed the 5,000. He healed people. I like Jesus. I'm not so sure about God. The incarnation says, no. Once you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And you can actually know him. The incarnation does one other thing, at least one other thing. There's probably more. But when it comes to our view of God, it helps us see that God came to us. I think so many of us live with this idea that in order for us to live, whether we say the Christian life or just part of another religion, we have to somehow earn our way to God. We've got to do the right things. We've got to, you know, say the right things. It's almost like we've got to climb the ladder just right. And if we climb it to the very top, there we are in heaven. We're at the throne of God. We bow before him. And then we'll think, surely he's pleased. Look at all I've done. The problem is, there's nothing we could do to get to God. The gap was too wide. And no matter what good works we could do, it could never bridge the gap. And so God came to us. He lays the bridge down from his side so that we can come over to him. It absolutely fundamentally changes our view of God. It shatters it. He's not a God who's distant. He's a God of love. And he loves you. He's not a God waiting to mete out justice on rebellious humanity. He's a God who came to rebellious humanity because he loves humanity. And he loves humanity so much That even though humanity was separated from God by their sin, God came to pay the penalty for us. The uh, famous radio broadcaster, Paul Harvey, uh, told a story about a man and some birds that really captures the idea of the incarnation. So I want you to listen for the next four minutes or so to Paul Harvey share with you the, the parable of the Christmas birds. The man I'm talking about was not a Scrooge now. He was a kind, a decent, a mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men, but he just did not believe in all of that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just did not make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm just not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home, but that he would wait up for them. So he stayed, and they went to the midnight service. Now, shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair, began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, then yet another. At first he thought somebody must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. 
But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled out there miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm in a desperate search for shelter. They had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That was what had been making the sound. Well, he couldn't let those poor creatures just lie there and freeze. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter. All he would have to do is direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat and galoshes, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, and he opened the doors wide. And inside the barn, he turned on a light so the birds would know the way in. But the birds did not come in. So he figured that food would entice them. He went back into the house and fetched some breadcrumbs and sprinkled those on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. The birds just continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He could not. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms, but instead they scattered in every direction, every direction except into the warm-lighted barn. And that's when he realized that they were afraid of him. They were afraid of him. To him he reasoned, I'm a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them but to help them, but how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird now, if I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid, then I could show them the way to the safe warm barn, but I would have to be one of them, wouldn't I? So they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. And he stood there listening to the bells. Adeste Fidelis. Listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. What a beautiful illustration the incarnation. Now, God was not like that man trying to figure it all out. He didn't spend a millennium attempting different ways to reach us. Because as we saw through our His Story series through this uh, 2017, that when Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, God already had a plan in place. And He began to say, I'm going to come to you to remove your sin from you. And he did it through Jesus. 
Jesus, the Word, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, took on human flesh to dwell among us, to live the life we were always intended to live, but he went on to die the death that we were supposed to die for our sin so that our sin could be forgiven and we could be welcomed into the life that God has for us. That is how the incarnation should impact us. And so my hope for you this Christmas season is that you will not just make Christmas a fluffy white snowball. It won't just be about music. It won't just be about food. It won't just be about TV specials. It won't be about family gatherings. That instead, it'll start to be about the incarnation and how it changes our view of God, of how God can be knowable because he came to us. And when that thought hits our hearts and impacts our faith, suddenly the music takes on a whole new meaning and our hearts swell in worship. The family gatherings take on a whole new meaning and we find ourselves thankful that when we spend time in the scriptures or we're giving presents, everything just takes on a whole new meaning because Jesus came so that you could know God. That's my hope for you this Christmas. I hope you will be impacted by the incarnation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that this year we would be impacted by the incarnation. That we would allow this knowledge of Jesus coming into human flesh, coming to live with humanity. That this would change how we approach our lives, how we approach our faith, how we approach our relationships, and even how we approach Christmas. So God, I pray that you'd rescue us from just the cultural trappings of this season. That we would enjoy them, but that we would go deeper. That we wouldn't just stop there. We would carry this all the way into the gospel. Realizing that you came for us. Because ultimately, you are going to remove our sin from us. And may that thought just launch us into having the best Christmas season we've ever had. So Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for eventually going to the cross. For showing us the way to our Father. So that we can no longer be spiritually disconnected. We can connect back with our Creator. It's in, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.